morning. I invite you to join me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. If you are here with us this morning and did not get a outline of the sermon and would like one, if you just raise your hand, we have an outline that you can follow along with the sermon and fill in some spaces, and I know they're out there handing them in, but we have one up here in the front that would like one, and anybody else? Can we get one of those up here? Uh, Darren? Anyone else would like to? I think we got everybody else. All right. Isaiah chapter number 9 the, uh, the next, uh, this week and then the following three weeks, we're going to look at the four uh, names given to the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah 9, the, the uh, recognition that he received in relation to his kingdom that is coming, um, the fact that he would be establishing a kingdom here on this earth, and we're looking forward to that kingdom in eternity, in, in the, what's called the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand-year reign of Christ here on this earth. And it will be a reign of righteousness, a reign of justice, a reign of peace. And uh, Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David, as promised here in this text, for that season. And uh, the earth will be a different place. And we look forward to that. And in addition to looking forward to that, the Bible says in the book of Luke that the kingdom of the Lord is already in our hearts. In other words, that we as Christians have the kingdom of Christ in us, and that is and that takes place through a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell uh, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and when He lives inside of us, He brings, um, he brings to us all of the things that are promised to us about the coming kingdom. So while the things about the kingdom that are promised, that are uh, prophetic or futuristic, are not true, from an, uh, a worldwide perspective, they should be true for individual Christians. In, in other words, the things that we look forward to about the kingdom in the future, which is where Christ reigns and there's peace and there's joy and there's righteousness and there's justice, that should already be true about every believer. And it's true that we're not, we're not fully there because we still... We still um, are hindered, if you will, by these bodies that we dwell in, these um, what 1 Corinthians 15 refers to as mortal bodies or um, bodies that are declining, but we're also promised that one day we'll have new bodies that will not be hindered, and, and then the kingdom of Christ will be able to take its full, uh, on its full state, uh, its full expression which is what the millennial kingdom is all about, is it's a full expression of Christ with, uh, with, with immortal people, with people who have been given glorified bodies. And so we look forward to that. But we also uh, understand that it's true about us now. And so we're going to look at these four uh, terms used to describe Christ and try to unfold them the next few weeks in such a way that we can embrace them now as promises that are true about every individual Christian, but also that we can embrace the fact that they will come to fulfillment one day in a kingdom 
that is eternal, that is not just a thousand years on the earth, but, but will that righteousness and that peace and all of those things will continue through eternity. And that's the hope of Christianity, isn't it? Really the hope of, Christ, of Christmas is that Jesus Christ came into this earth and became a man and took upon himself all of humanity. And then in his death, he took upon himself all of our sins, having never sinned himself, having never committed one uh, wrongdoing. He was the perfect sacrifice for mankind's sins. He takes upon himself all of mankind's sins. He dies as a substitute. And then three days later, he rises again. And this is the beginning. Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise here in Isaiah, that this kingdom is now coming. And we have the resurrected king. He's already seated on a heavenly throne. Amen? And he will seat on an earthly throne, but he's already seated on a heavenly throne. He should already be seated on the hearts of all believers' throne, the throne of their hearts, and he will one day sit on the throne of David here on this earth. And it's a good, it's a good promise, isn't it? I mean, it's really something to look forward to. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the wonderful counselor. I'm going to read uh, verse 1 through 7 of chapter number 9. And uh, just follow along with me, and we're going to rest on two, verse, uh, two words that are in this passage of Scripture. Verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." And we know that Jesus Christ's main ministry was in Galilee. He shined his light on Galilee, and he, through his work in Galilee, he has, he has spread his gospel message throughout the entire world. Uh, the, the events of Galilee were just the, the prerequisite to the events that would take place in all of the world, that we are experiencing today Christ's work around the world as a uh, product of what Jesus Christ did in Galilee. We can look at Christ's ministry and know that it's true and happening today in the church, not just in Galilee, but all around the world. The people, the Bible says in verse number two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on whom his light has shone. Have, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of your burden, or his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warriors is battle in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." In other words, there'll be peace and prosperity in this, in this season of Christ's reign. Not a type of prosperity that we look at today and, and consider in our world today where there is competition and uh, striving and fighting and conflict to get ahead and to, to get uh, more and to be what we would call successful from the world's eyes, but there's going to be a prosperity and a peace that is unique and different, a heavenly prosperity 
and a divine peace. And he goes on in verse number 6 to describe the reason for this all happening or the foundation or the basis for which all of this will happen. And he says, For unto us is born, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And these just describe, these two phrases just describe number one, Jesus Christ's humanity. Uh, a child is born is something that we understand perfectly. We see when Jesus Christ was born, he was a fully man and he was born into this world as a, a human being. But we don't understand a son is given. And this can be directly connected to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When Jesus Christ was born into this world, he was the divine son of God, the eternally existing son of God. He was given to us. He wasn't just born into this world, having not existed prior to his birth, but he existed eternally prior to his birth. He was a gift to humanity to bring salvation to us. So not only do we have Jesus Christ, the, the um, baby that is born in the manger, but we have the Son of God being born into this earth. What makes Christmas so unique is that it is Emmanuel that came. Uh, Isaiah 7 says that his name will be called Emmanuel, and Matthew says that that just simply means God with us. The reality of it is for 33 and a half years, God walked amongst men. The Bible goes on to say, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the Lord's work. It's a sovereign work. It's a work of God that is accomplished on the basis of His, of his strength, of His guidance and his, good, and his goodness. It is not built around the goodness of men. It is not built around the strength of men, the abilities of men. The kingdom that will come that will be a perfectly righteous kingdom is built solely on the work of the Lord. It is His zealousness for righteousness. It is his zeal for goodness and is his zeal for peace and hope and prosperity that will bring about these events. So as Jesus Christ as king or the coming king, he is the wonderful counselor, which is we will be where we rest our thoughts this morning. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about counseling see, uh, unfold this idea of what it means to be a wonderful counselor, and then look at Jesus Christ as the wonderful counselor. In 2018, a Barna Research or Barna Research Group did a study on counseling or therapy in America. You may be surprised at some of the results. I'm going to share them with you. 42% of adults in America have... Um, admitted to being involved in some form of counseling or therapy in their lifetime. 42%, that's four out of every 10 Americans have been involved in some form of therapy in their lifetime. 13% say that they are regularly seeing a therapist or a counselor. 28% say that they have seen a counselor or um, that they have seen a counselor or a therapist in the past. 
In addition to these numbers, 36% more say that they are open to seeing a counselor or therapist if necessary. Millennials and Gen X, which would be the last two generations, are most interested in counseling and therapy. 21% of millennials and 16% of Gen X say that they currently see a counselor or a therapist on a regular basis. In opposition to that, 8% of boomers and 1% of the elderly are regularly seeing a counselor or a therapist. What we can learn from this is the path that America is on. We're becoming therapist and counselor-oriented. America is full of people with problems, amen? We are. We're full of people with problems. And we're not just full of people with problems, but we're full of people who don't want to have problems. So what they're doing is is they're trying to find a solution for their problems. They're finding a way to solve their problems, right? It's natural. It's built into us. We're problem solvers. So if there's a solution out there, we are going to probably find that solution. America is no different. We're seeing that increase in uh, from Gen X to the millennials. We see an increase of 5% that are constantly seeing counselors. And we see between the boomers and the elderly a decrease in 7%, from 1% up to 8%, up to 16%, up to 21%, just going by generation to generation. And these aren't people that have just seen counselors. These are people that are regularly seeing therapists, seeing them on a regular basis. So we can kind of see where we're headed as a culture. We, we understand what counselors are. And if we did a poll in here this morning, we would probably all say, or many of us would say at some point in time, I've seen a counselor or a therapist for help. I was Googling types of counselors this week as I was preparing for my sermon. One website had over 39 categories for types of counselors or therapists. Another website had upwards of 90 plus types or forms of counseling and therapy. Both of these websites, or I should say it this way, neither of these websites offered biblical counseling. And every one of them, if you were to take and just do a a quick study, you would find literally from birth to death, there is some form of counseling being offered to people. It's everywhere. There is something for whatever you're dealing with right now in your life. I can tell you, you could come to me and I could say, okay, on 5th Street at, you know, 317. I don't know if there's anything at 317 5th Street, but there's a counselor for that. Literally everything that you go through in your life, there's a counselor for it. There's a therapist that's going to help you get through it. Right? It's true, isn't it? I mean, it's something that we're seeing a constant increase in, in America. And I don't think just in America, but in our world as well. We're a hurting people. We're a struggling people. We're people with a lot of problems. We're people that are looking for solutions for those problems. The issue is, is we're looking in all the wrong places. Most counselors that we go through, go to, And most counselors that were listed on these two sites that I looked at with 39 categories and 90 categories of counseling, most of these counselors are like Ahaz. We looked at Ahaz last week. He's the backdrop. He's the king 
during this time, and he's the backdrop of King Jesus, and he's the antithesis of King Jesus. Most counselors like Ahaz seek and give worldly counsel without any consideration of God or his word. Is that true? Most counselors don't consider God, don't consider his word, don't consider what he says as being important for the process of counseling. So in other words, they have to come up with some type of a worldly solution to solve your problems. And some of those solutions work, don't they? Some of those solutions give you a period of relief. They give you a period of joy. They give you a period where you sense that there's a peace in your life, a joy in your life. The problem is, is you've just solved your problem the same way that Ahaz solved his problem when the Lord basically sends him into deep darkness. What's obvious is that America isn't ignorant of counseling. However, what may surprise you and what may surprise some is the concept of a singular counselor who is all-wise and wonderful and expects his followers to come to him for help. What may surprise you is, is that there is a singular counselor. There is one counselor, and he, his expectations are is we will come to him and him alone for help. In the kingdom that's going to be coming, Jesus is going to be the counselor. He's going to be the one that gives advice. He's going to be the one that gives wisdom. He expects us to come to him for counseling because he's the best counselor. It's not like he's saying, come to me to counseling because I need more money. I charge lower rates than anybody else in town. He's not telling us that, is he? He says, come to me to, for counseling because I'm the wonderful counselor. I'm the best counselor there is. I'm the one that's going to give you advice that's going to last. He's the one that's going to give us advice that matters. He's the one that's going to give us advice that not only impacts this life for good, but when you wake up the day after you have died, it will impact the next life for eternity. And listen, he's the only one. He's the only one that gives this type of counsel. And there are counselors that represent him, but they're not counselors. He's the counselor. They're just messengers. I'm just a messenger. I'm not here to share with you what my wisdom is. I pray that I share with you what his wisdom is. If I share with you what my wisdom is, it's just as worthless as anybody else's wisdom. It's so weird. We go and we sit in front of a person, they tell us all of their thoughts on our problems, and they never consider the one who, who created us. They never consider the wisdom of God's word, and we walk away and we think, wow, that was just so good. There's something broken, not just about humanity, but there's something broken about what we are seeking to satisfy and correct the problems that we have. And we tell people who come to us with problems about salvation, who is the only solution? Who is the only solution for your salvation issues? Say it louder. Jesus is the only solution for your, for your salvation problems, but listen to me. Jesus is the only solution for any of your problems. 
That's why he's called the wonderful counselor here. That's why he presents himself to these people who are desperately in need. He presents himself in such a way that they will know that he's the one that they can come to. There's a king that's coming that's going to be able to give you counsel that's not going to be like, you, uh, uh, like Ahaz's counsel. It's going to be different. And that king has come. And in their time, he hadn't come. They had to wait hundreds, if not thousands of years for it to get here. Isaiah, about 750 years before Christ comes. So they had to wait 750 years. We have nothing, we have nothing to say about waiting. It's, it's here. The kingdom of the Lord is in your heart. You have the wonderful counselor living inside of you. He says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Jesus is speaking. You're familiar with it. You don't need to turn there. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What he's saying is, is yoke yourself to Christ. When it comes to needing wisdom, the Bible says in, 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 the Bible says in James uh, 1, if any man lacks wisdom, let him go to a really good counselor. Is that what it says? That might be in your version. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and doesn't withhold any wisdom. True? This, 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 this wise counselor lives inside of you. And he's not just a wise counselor, he's an all-wise counselor. He, he knows everything. There's nothing about your situation or your circumstances that he doesn't know. And, and let me go one step further. He has experienced everything. You ever go into a counselor and you're asking them about marriage and they're giving you counseling about how how your marriage can be great, and then you find out that they've never been married before? Or, or they're on their fifth mate, and they're telling you how to, how to be a good husband or a good wife? That's broken, isn't it? Jesus has been through it all. He says literally in Hebrews that he has been tested in every way that we have been tested so that we can come to him and he can be a worthy counselor. Every struggle, every difficulty, every challenge, every temptation, everything that you've ever faced in your life, Jesus faced it. And he faced it victoriously. He's not like the person who never experienced any problems, went through life you know, with a silver spoon in his mouth and became a counselor, and now is going to tell you how to handle all your problems. He's the guy who experienced it all, walked through it like he was walking on water, Right? Walk through it like he was walking on water because he was victorious and he's going to tell us how to do it now. That's what the wonderful counselor is. It says, come to him. So let's work through this um, quickly. What is a counselor, first of all? To understand what it means that Jesus is the wonderful counselor, we must first define counselor. This shouldn't be difficult for us as Americans because we interact with them on such a regular basis. Webster's Dictionary defines counselor as one who gives, it, who gives advice as the result of consultation. And if you're taking notes, the first point is, what is a counselor? What is a counselor? 
Webster's Dictionary, one who gives, an, gives advice on, um, as a result of consultation or advice support given to help people deal with their problems or to make important decisions. It's usually associated with experts in a certain science or behavior. You always have, a, you always have an expert who has either studied something out or something of that nature when you're dealing with counseling. The biblical definition of counselor uh, comes from the Hebrew word ya'atz, and it means to advise, consult, or give counsel, or to plan. Let me give you a few references here. They're written in your notes, so you don't need to turn there. Psalm 16 and verse 7, the Bible tells us that Jesus is our counselor. Psalm 32 and verse number 8, the word counsel and guide are used interchangeably. Proverbs 13.10, the word counsel and advisor is interchangeable. Isaiah 14.24, the word counsel and purpose or plan is interchangeable. And and Isaiah 41.28, the word counselor is interchangeable with the idea of answering questions or giving answers. So a counselor at the end of the day is one who knows more than we do about a given science or behavior, he has a plan or a purpose for bringing a solution to that problem, and he provides information or answers about this science or behavior. That would be a definition, uh, both a grammatical English definition as well as you connect it to the biblical definition from the Hebrew word. What you come up with is this type of a definition. It's someone that knows more than you do, He has an understanding of that certain area that you're needing help in. He has a plan or a understanding or a purpose for you in working through it, and he provides you information that answers and answers about this science or behavior. This is what a counselor is. Point number two, what is wonderful? The Bible says that he is a wonderful counselor. So this is describing what type of counselor Jesus Christ is. He is a wonderful counselor, and there might be some confusion about what this means, and we'll try to unpack that for you. Underneath what is wonderful is the the antithesis of wonderful. The antithesis of wonderful. Ahaz, in chapter 7 through 9, is set forth for us as the antithesis of wonderful. He has set forth for us as somebody that you would not want to listen to in counsel. Somebody that would give counsel that you would want to say no to. Someone that would give counsel that you would want to reject. Someone that would give counsel that you would not see as being wise, but you would see it as being foolish counsel. And listen, there are foolish counselors in the world. Matter of fact, uh, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that all worldly wisdom, according to the Lord, is... All worldly wisdom, according to the Lord, is foolishness. He even calls it, in, his, in Paul's epistles, he calls it science falsely so-called. In other words, it's not even science. He just call it science, but it's not really science. The antithesis of wonderful, again, Ahaz is set forth as this, We remember from last week's sermon, when he was advised not to fear, he feared. When he was advised not to worry, he worried. When he was advised to seek God, he sought man. 
When he was advised to trust the supernatural, he instead trusted the natural. When he was told by God that everything was going to work out, everything was going to be fine, that God himself was going to intervene in relation to uh, Syria and Israel bringing an attack on them, and instead of trusting that, uh, Ahaz makes, a, makes a, uh, an agreement with Assyria to help protect them in the situation. He, instead of trusting in the supernatural, he took himself and placed himself in the realm of the natural. I believe that Ahaz's counsel, what he received counsel and what he gave as counsel can be defined for us in James 3 and verse 15 where it says this, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. This is not, note this, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but instead this is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. Notice this, James 3.15 is defining worldly wisdom as demonic, being from the devil, and unspiritual. Another word uh, some versions use, which I think makes uh, uh, gives us a little bit of a deeper understanding of it, is it uses the word sensual. It literally means that your wisdom that you're presenting is fully focused upon the senses. The senses, the five senses that we have, the wisdom that you give is built around those five senses. It is sensual. It is controlled by our senses. It is controlled by that which is natural. That's why it says that it is earthly. It's not heavenly. It's earthly wisdom. It's demonic. It's, it's unspiritual wisdom. It's not wisdom that considers the spiritual in the situation or in the circumstance. When your wisdom that you have does not take into account the supernatural power of God, it's not divine wisdom. It's earthly wisdom. And if it's earthly wisdom, it's unspiritual wisdom. If it's unspiritual wisdom, it's demonic wisdom. You say, Pastor John, I just don't see it that way. Well, that's fine. You're welcome to see it however you want. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It's very easy, and I believe that we're that we as a culture of, of what we call professing Christians are being, are being deceived and sucked into systems and, and um, wisdom that is fully worldly, totally worldly. It doesn't consider the Word of God. It doesn't even consider the existence of God. I've had people come to me in the last five years and say to me, well, this person told me this, and without this counselor or this therapist told me this, and before we're even through with the conversation, they're telling me that this person is an atheist who doesn't even believe in God, but yet somehow, some way, some shape or form, they're giving us spiritual good counsel. It makes no sense at all, but the reality of it is it inundated our thinking. We've been, we've been slowly manipulated and maneuvered into thinking that they must know what's right. And they don't. They know what's temporarily okay. They know what might fix your problems today. They're like taking NyQuil. It'll make you sleep at night, and it might take away some of the effects of your sickness, but it doesn't deal with your sickness at all. Isaiah talks about it. If you, if you need a surgery and people come in with cancer that's deep into the into the body and they come in and they see a little sore on your arm and they, they, they take a little scraper and they scrape the sore off your arm and, it's every, they, and the doctor says, you're fine, go on your way. 
And the Lord rebukes the Lord rebukes the preachers in that in that time and saying, "You didn't dig deep enough. You didn't get the scalpel out and cut open and get that cancer out of there because it's far deeper than you can see." Wonderful is not an unwillingness to obey God. It's not an unwillingness to seek His counsel, and it's not an unwillingness to trust in the supernatural. That's what it's not. That's the antithesis of it. Number two, underneath what is wonderful, the assumption of wonderful. It's been said by people leaving a certain counselor to their friends, you need to go and see this counselor. You ever said that to somebody or heard that from somebody? Maybe your marriage is struggling and somebody else's marriage is struggling and they go and they get this wonderful counsel from somebody and and they come and they call you and they're like, oh, Susie, you need to go and see this counselor. He'll fix your marriage, right? Anybody? We've heard that before. I, I've heard that before. When quizzed about why, why do I need to go see this counselor? Here's usually the given answer. They made me feel so good. They made me feel so good. Or they told me what I wanted to hear. Or... They helped me accomplish my goals. Or this one is pretty common as well. I've heard this one myself. They gave it to they really gave it to my wife or husband. You may go to a counselor and walk away with the physical and emotional um, goals that you went in there to accomplish and still that counselor not be giving you wise counsel. Someone may leave a counseling session feeling good, having heard what they wanted to hear and been helped to accomplish their own goals, but the counseling could be totally wrong. Listen, folks, earthly counsel is able to fix our problems temporarily. That's the problem with them. It sounds so good. It's worked for so many people. But then what you find in the next generation is you find the fruits of listening to worldly counsel because it doesn't fix the problem. It just masks it. It just covers it up. It's almost like everything that the world tries to accomplish simply covers up instead of dealing with. So these feelings that you walk away with doesn't mean that you went to a good counselor. It doesn't mean that. The authenticity, this is number three under that, the authenticity of, of wonderful. This comes from the Hebrew word pala. We can look at James 3.14, the verse before what we read about evil uh, counsel. It says in James 3.14, the wisdom that is from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, and it's impartial, it's impartial and sincere. There's a few things I want you to think about and consider when you think about the idea of wonderful in our text. The word could mean exceedingly good, wise, and right. Psalm 34 and verse 8, the Bible says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. However, how do you define good? 
this same word is actually used in the scriptures to bring reprimand on people. Is reprimand good? Is it? Absolutely. Does the world see reprimand as good? 1 Peter 2, 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I just wanted to give you that because the Lord is good. That is not the definition of this word. That's not the meaning of this word. It's not the reason this word is given to us here that they would know that the Lord is good. It does have some implications to it, but there's more. The Lord is not just exceedingly good, rise and right. But here's where this word, here's what this word means. It means extraordinary. The Lord is an extraordinary counselor. And just break that word apart. That means he is extraordinary, which means he's not ordinary. He's not natural. He's not normal. He's not going to give you the answers that the world gives you. He's going to give you the absolutely opposite answer. He's going to give you an extraordinary answer. In other words, the answer the Lord gives us in counsel is going to press us into a realm that causes us to believe in the extraordinary. Why do you think the second description of Jesus is that he is the mighty God? Because his wisdom is going to press you into believing in his might. If you don't trust in the Lord's wisdom, you'll never see his might. Because his wisdom, the earth's wisdom, the world's wisdom, will press you to see the world's might and the world's strength and the world's wisdom. But God's wisdom will press you to see his might. And that's a prerequisite for next week. We will look at the mighty God. He is miraculous, marvelous, amazing. Something that is wonderful in relation to this term is something that leaves you pondering, how did this happen? When you think about the wonderful counselor and the information that he gives you and the results that he produces, he will always cause you to wonder. That's what wonderful means. He will cause you to wonder, how did this happen? You will be amazed at the end of the day at how it happened. This term is used in Exodus 15. We won't turn there. In verse 1 through 13, you can read it in your own time. These are the miraculous works of Egypt. The ten plagues that the Lord sent, the splitting of the Red Sea, the water from the rock, the manna from heaven, the supernatural provision of meat, the supernatural sustaining of the, Jew, of the, of the Hebrew people's clothes for 40 years. You know, why didn't he just drop some money down from heaven and say, go to Costco and get some new clothes? How supernatural was he displaying himself to be? How wonderful was he displaying himself to be by answering their problems in the supernatural? He led them by a pillar of fire by day and a, a pillar uh, and a cloud by night. Or I might have gotten that backwards, but he led them supernaturally. Why didn't he just drop a map out of heaven or send some kind of a person that could lead them along the way? He wanted them to trust, he wanted them to trust him for the supernatural each step of the way. 
Why didn't he, when he told Abraham to, to pack up his things and go to a land that he's going to show him, why didn't he just tell him where it was? Why? Because every moment and every step along the way was an act of faith in Abraham's heart towards God. Not just in the natural realm. He didn't want it to be considered natural at all. He wanted it all to be considered supernatural. Everything about the Egyptian uh, release was supernatural. Why? So that they would know it was God. Why did God send 10 plagues? Not to judge the Egyptian people. He sent 10 plagues. He says it this way. He sent 10 plagues so that the Israelites would know He was the one sending them out. Lest they return again. You imagine, they're out there and they're standing there at the Red Sea. and It's like, oh my goodness, let's go back into Egypt. And we know that they say that. But then when they look back at Egypt, they're like, okay, let's see. We got 10 plagues. That was God. We got the Red Sea. Oh, that was God too. Let's just stay where we're at. Supernatural. He uses this term in Psalm 77, verse 11 through 14, to talk about the miraculous works of God. Psalm 88.10, the same term is used to talk about the resurrection of the dead. Psalm 119.129, the same term is used to describe the Word of God. Isaiah 25.1, O Lord, You are my God, I will exalt You, I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things. Plans formed from old, faithful and true. The Bible says in the New Testament that Jesus Christ, that the people around Jesus sought after signs and, signs and, same idea. Every miracle of Jesus in the New Testament was called a wonderful work, a miraculous work, a miracle work. Wonders, wonderful refers to somebody who is good, but more than that, someone who is amazing, who is miraculous, someone who brings reverence and awe. And this brings us to point number three. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Turn with me to Isaiah 11. Just one, two chapters to your right, probably one page to your right. Isaiah 11 is the fulfillment, really, of the promise. He talks about the kingdom in Isaiah 11 in its fulfilled state. But it begins with Jesus in verse 1. It says, And there shall come forth a, sh a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by, listen to this, this is talking about Jesus. He, he will have the spirit of counsel, the spirit of wisdom, the counsel of, uh, have the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And he will judge, listen to this, he will judge not by what his eyes see. He will judge not by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That means Jesus will judge not by natural things, but by supernatural things. Everything about Jesus is supernatural. Think of these things. 
As wonderful counselor, he is the expert. As creator, he understands us. As a man, he has experienced what we have have experienced. As God, he knows more than we do. Romans 16, 27 calls him the only wise God to the only wise God. Wait, maybe I read that wrong. To one of many wise gods. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That just leaves no room for argument. If you want to to argue, amen me, don't argue. He is the only wise God. Isaiah 55 and verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Can we agree that God knows more than we do? Can we agree that God knows more than anybody else in the world? The greatest of scientists, can we agree that God knows more than they do? I think so. I don't think we have to stretch to believe that. He created them and created the science that they try to study. I think he knows more than they do. As Savior, he loves us. Romans 8 and verse 32 says, Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How shall we not, how shall how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As wonderful counselor, he is the expert. As wonderful counselor, he plans and guides. It is his counsel and his plan for our life. His counsel makes it possible for us to know his plan. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and what will he do? He will make your path straight. Do you know what it means to make someone's path straight? Do you know the difference between a curvy path and a straight path? You can see. If I'm going down a straight road, I can see what's next. What the devil does is the devil creates curvy paths and he plants a bunch of tree in between every single turn. And we don't know. We fear. We worry. Oh my goodness, what's around that next turn? What's going to be behind that tree over there that the devil has planted in our way? The Bible says this, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and you do not lean on your own understanding, or let me say it this way, you do not lean on the world's understanding, he will make your path straight. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It means he will make the desires of your heart the same as his desires. Those who, Je- those who see Jesus as wonderful will have learned to listen, submit, and obey his direction. They refuse to follow worldly wisdom even if it includes God. Matthew chapter number 19 tells us that the rich young ruler who found himself full of himself with his riches and his wisdom, but was not afraid to add Jesus' wisdom to his program. What you need to understand is this, Jesus Christ is not into joining your program. He has his own program that's a thousand times better than yours. He's inviting you to join his. It's a gift of forgiveness. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift of having your road straightened. But he's offering you to join his program, not to invite him to join yours. You know what most of our prayers, you know what most of our prayers reveal? 
mine included, they reveal that I want Jesus to be a part of my program. They do. And not that I'm coming to find out what is his program and then to do it. His counsel is his plan, not ours for our lives. His counsel is made possible. Um, his counsel makes it possible for us to know him. His counsel is found, listen to me, his counsel is found only in his word. His counsel is found only in his word. The only way that you can know God's plan and direction is to read his word. And it's not just to read his word, but you must resist the temptation to combine the wisdom of his word with the wisdom of this world. It must be the wisdom of the word only. That is why all counsel that is not given through the word is worldly counsel. It is sensual and devilish. If we want, listen to me, I mean, and this is, I'm not closing yet, but I'm going to save that for my closing. We must reject all other forms of wisdom and remember that wisdom, that is man's wisdom, is seen as foolishness to God. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is the lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and, is, and is, is helpful. It's good. It's profitable. Hebrews 1 and verse 1 and 2 says that God used to speak through us through the prophets, but now he speaks to us through his word or through his son, who is the word, John 1. As wonderful counselor, he plans and he guides Number three in that section, as wonderful counselor, listen to this, this is important, as wonderful counselor, he presses us to the wonder. He presses us into the world of wonder. Stop living in the world of the natural. You're missing something wonderful. He presses us into the world of the supernatural. Listen, compare him to Ahaz. Ahaz wanted to press them into the world of the natural. Every problem has a natural solution. But listen to me, every problem also has a supernatural solution. The natural solution will get you through the day. The supernatural, uh, the supernatural solution will get you through eternity. You know what they say, you can feed a man with a fish for a day or you can teach him how to fish and he will eat for a long time. Which one is wisdom? Is it wisdom to give you a solution for your problem that will fix you for a day, a week, a month, or a year? Or is it wisdom that will fix your problem for eternity? That's what the wonderful counselor is all about, folks. He is pressing us into the supernatural. He is pressing us into the miraculous. He is pressing us into trusting him enough to give him the opportunity to display his power through us. He tells us in, in the Old Testament prophets, he says that the Lord's eyes go to and fro throughout the earth looking for someone through whom he can display his power. That is not, that is not a, an ambivious statement or oblivious statement. That is a literal statement that God is looking for somebody to show his might through. He says, in, he says in Mark 4 that he could not perform miracles in a certain place because there was no faith there. 
Jesus' counsel is always going to force you into wonder, into amazement, into miraculous. You may not like his counsel. You may not follow his counsel. But it will always press you to him. His counsel will force us out of our comfort zone. When Jesus Christ counsels us, there's no earthly safety or security. When Jesus Christ counsels us, it's all about risk. It's all about boldness. And it's all about assurance in him and him alone. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 5, read it for yourself. It talks about in the last days, all of these things will happen. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, blah, 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 blah. You get it. It says the very last thing is men will have a form of godliness, right? That means they'll be religious, but they will deny the power. They will have a form of godliness. They will have an expression of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof. And he says this, from such people, turn away. Because these people are going to lead you away from the supernatural. And God is all about the supernatural. You see, we believe he's the wonderful counselor. It's easy to say that. Oh, yeah, he's a wonderful counselor. Man, he, everything that we want and everything. He's like Santa Claus. No, he's a wonderful counselor that's going to press you into something that you've never imagined before. The last thought is believers are responders or believers respond to the wonderful counselor. Responding well to the wonderful counselor requires four things, and you can see them at the bottom of your notes. God's counsel, number one, requires obedience. When God gives counsel or when Jesus gives counsel, it is done in a way that it is information needing application. It is information, God's counsel is information needing application. In other words, he is putting in your heart or in your mind something that you need to apply. The counsel of God doesn't help one bit the disobedient. He says in Deuteronomy 11, verse 26 and 27, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a cursing. The blessing is if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the cursing is, is if you disobey. He has set that before us. God has amazing counsel for us, but it must be obeyed. It must be submitted to in order for us to see the fruits of it. I believe that we live in a world today that believes that God is a wonderful counselor, but I also believe that we haven't seen it being played out in the miraculous. I think about when I was preparing this, I thought about Daniel in the book of Daniel where he refused to eat the king's meat. He said, I will not defile myself with the king's meat or with his wine. Man, these are, these are things that are somewhat simple, right? It's like, just eat the king's meat, Daniel, come on. Just take the king's wine, Daniel, come on. The problem wasn't the meat and the wine. The problem was it was the king's meat and the wine. And he says, I will not take the king's meat and wine because my God has a different plan. And you know what he did? He put the onus on who? Who did he give an opportunity to prove himself? God. 
he gave God an opportunity to prove himself. And after 10 days, God proved himself, didn't he? And man, that was just the beginning because then later there are going to be three kids that are going to be thrown into a fiery furnace and Daniel's going to end up in a lion's den. And listen, lots of people are going to be saved. Why? Because of four guys who are willing to give God an opportunity to do the supernatural. Just eat the meat and drink the wine, Daniel. Come on. It's not as simple as that, is it? It's not as easy as that, is it? God's counsel requires us to be obedient, number one. Number two, underneath this one, God's counsel requires us to trust him fully. Halfway won't work. Halfway will only get you halfway. Full trust in his wisdom and full trust in his ability. He calls us to trust him 100%. God's counsel requires full trust. Number three, God's counsel requires patience. There's probably not something that you'll find less of. There's probably not too many themes that you'll find more of in the Bible than the idea of patience. Waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 40 says, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 27, verse 13, 14 says, I believe that I should see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says this, wait on the Lord. And again, he says, he says, wait on the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Again, I say, wait on the Lord. You see, in in America's culture of microwave oven Christianity, we want the solution yesterday. And if God won't give it to us yesterday, then we'll find it somewhere else today. True or false? We never give God an opportunity because we're not willing to wait. This is the world's philosophy. This is sensual, completely sensual unspiritual, and demonic. Not my words, but his. God's counsel requires, number four, perseverance. You're going in order, listen to me, in order to see the miraculous, you're going to have to be willing to face difficulty. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not saved from the fiery furnace. They were saved through it. Daniel was not saved from the lion's den. He was saved through it. David was not saved from Goliath. He was saved through Goliath. You will never see, we will never see the ability of our God in our culture until there is a people that are willing to wait on him and that are willing to persevere through whatever he thinks is necessary to work in our lives and to trust that he's going to bring us out at the end. First Peter 2.21, he says, For to this you have been called, speaking of suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 
in closing, with the wonderful counselor, you must not put limitations on him. It is full in, all the time, even in the midst of the most difficult of trials. Put Jesus to the test and see if he doesn't show you a miraculous work. Put Jesus to the test and see if he doesn't show you the miraculous. This Christmas, and we're in this season of Christmas, we're thinking about Jesus, the wonderful counselor. Let us be comforted by the fact that we have a wonderful counselor. He's better than all other counselors. Matter of fact, he's the only counselor who will give us the right answer and the eternal answer. He lives inside of you this morning if you're a Christian. If you're saved, he lives inside of you. If you're not saved, he promises that if you put your faith in him, he will come to live inside of you. He knows everything. He knows what you're going through right now. He knows how much it hurts. He knows how painful it is. He knows how difficult it is. He's not oblivious to your situation, yet he calls you to be patient. He calls you to be persevering, and he calls you to believe that the supernatural will happen at some point. He's in believers, and he is coming to set up his kingdom in which we can hope. This Christmas, let us honor Christ by recognizing him and accepting him as all-wise, as all-knowing, and as all-loving counselor. And let us, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all of our cares upon him, for he cares for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we trust you so um, limitedly. We need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. We need your direction. We need your power to persevere, your strength to trust and be patient with whatever you have planned, to know that there's a plan there and that it is working out for your glory and for our good and to trust that. Please help us as we go home today to think about the wonderful counselor. And Lord, prepare us for the thoughts next week on the mighty God. We thank you for it all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.